you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran, co-founder with Padre Gotuma of 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes to tell a true story from their own life. And we love it. We're staying on Zoom for the time being, and while we miss our lovely black box audience, we're also loving our new international audience. Storytellers and viewers join us from across Britain and Ireland, as well as North America and Europe. Oh, not forgetting Iran. If you haven't yet, why not join us wherever you are in the world? All the details are on the website, 10by9.com. Now, we're blessed with amazing storytellers, and this podcast features two of them, both called Helen. And they told their stories on July 8th, when the theme was Small World. In a few minutes, you'll hear from Helen Killick. But first up, here's Helen McClements. Uh, many of you have heard the, the stories behind this one before, but hopefully this one stands alone. So I was over 11,000 miles from home when I had the accident, which left my partner dead and me severely injured in hospital in Dunedin, New Zealand in January 2005. We had been traveling together with the intention of settling in Christchurch, he as a doctor and me as a teacher. This part was our holiday to relax and get a flavor of what we would do on our weekends off after we made the official move. And then one bright January morning after camping high in Mount Aspiring National Park, I slipped on wet grass and Donal leapt to grab me and the two of us tumbled off a cliff. Donal died at the scene, not that I realized this at the time, and I was helicoptered off the mountain by search and rescue and taken to Dunedin Hospital. In the A&E ward initially, I remember saying that I was actually okay and that no, a catheter would really not be necessary, thank you very much. I could just nip to the toilet if they could help me as I was a wee bit stiff. I had no idea as to the extent of my injuries. The staff tried to play down what had happened to me and to focus on all the superficial wounds which involved stitching my right eyelid back together and seeing to the bloody abrasions on my limbs. It wasn't until after I'd spent a night in the ICU when x-rays revealed all the breakages. The C7 fracture in my neck caused the most concern and necessitating having four holes drilled into my skull. I remember the sound of the drill echoing around the room and the series of injections into the side of my forehead, feeling that they were penetrating the very core of my being. I remember little of the next days as I lay in a drug-induced stupor. When I woke up and pieced together bits of what had happened, I wanted to close my eyes and shut everything out. Seeing my distress as I gradually emerged from this state, the nurses asked whether I wanted to speak to someone. Initially, I was adamant that I didn't want a chaplain in case I ended up with some pious type offering platitudes. Worse still would have been an evangelical who seeing me prone in bed may have preached fire and brimstone to his captive audience. But sensing my apprehension, a nurse fetched Robin, who promptly arrived, tall and white-haired with piercing blue eyes. She coached me through the next dreadful days as I gathered up pieces of my shattered self. 
Only now did I register that Donal was gone, no matter how many times I called for him from the hospital bed through the night. I lay and cried and Robin listened. What was he like, she asked. Describe him to me. Trying to do this was a sudden and fresh form of hell, because how could I even start to talk about him in the past tense? To say that he had brown hair and had blue sparkly eyes and that there was always a slight catch in his voice as though he may laugh at any minute. It was this and his kindness and his huge appetite for all that life had to give that now lay crumpled on the mountainside. It was the waste of it, the sheer stupidity of a fall and an accident that had laid waste to all this energy. I don't recall everything that Robin said, but I remember her voice, her willingness to listen and her gentle but insistent urging that I talk about him and what had happened. These talks were obviously to make clear in my head that despite my injuries and confusion that I actually registered what had taken place. Knowing Donal was to be captivated by him, you could not help but be carried along because of the glee and the buzz and the sparks that ignited and flew. Write it down, said Robin. When you sit up, and as soon as you can use your arms again, you write this down. One day Robin arrived and she asked if the names Paul and Sue meant anything to me. Despite my confusion, these names didn't ring any bells. She went on to explain that they were the family of a former girlfriend of Donald's who lived in New Zealand. The girlfriend herself was away at the time, but they were close by and they wondered if I needed any company. I was bewildered. I knew that Donal had a serious girlfriend before me and that they too had visited New Zealand when he had been on his elective year as a medic. They had later broken up, but she had come on and apparently settled on the South Island. While she was here, she was cycling in the mountains and had suffered an accident and had a serious head injury. And just as Robin was beside me now, helping me through the darkness, they developed such a rapport that Robin officiated at her wedding when she got married a while later. I never did meet her or her family in the end, because by this time other visitors began coming in droves to the hospital once word of the accident and my subsequent loss spread. There seemed to be a large Irish contingency in Dunedin and the world seemed smaller than ever before. People who knew people I taught with came, former friends and deep doctors who knew Donald came and the list sometimes seemed so endless I had to say no, no more visitors today. But one afternoon I woke to see a man at my bedside. He said that he was Scott and was a friend of Gary. Gary was my best friend's brother. To my knowledge, Scott had no experience dealing with the traumatised person, but he came every day with his family sometimes and was instrumental in helping me regain my sanity. He spoke kindly and in a matter of fact way. He realised that I hadn't seen a mirror and talked me through what I looked like. 
that my eyes were bruised and my face was swollen, but that he had seen a photo of me prior to this and he said that I still looked like myself. He said that because of the halo, which was the euphemistic term for the cage around my head, that my hair was sticking out at mad angles, but that the effect was weird as opposed to scary. He asked if it was all right if he took a photo and that I had something to show my children in the future and what their mum had gone through. I agreed to the picture, but looked on at disbelief at the idea that I would ever meet anybody and ever have children. For me, days after the event, this seemed absurd. But still, in saying this to me, he sowed a seed. His tone and his belief that somehow I had a future was essential for me to know. I had survived and another life beyond this present hell was not an impossibility. The nurses and doctors in Dunedin were incredible. But it was this connection which I shared with Robin and Scott that I think of first when I recall this time. Oh, Helen, thank you so much. Thank you. How long ago was that accident, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, 15 years now, Paul. Right. <clears throat> Did you ever show the girls that photograph or are they still too young? No, I think they're still too young. To be frank, I haven't looked at it myself in about five years. It's down in mummy and daddy's house because I had thought about bringing it tonight, you know, but I just, and I, I don't even think I could bring myself to ask mum and dad to go and find it. I don't know if they've ever seen it, you know, like in, in some ways it's still really raw. But what has been really nice recently is that the kids found a photo album and sometimes I talk about Donal and we now refer to him as Uncle Donal because and uh, the kids said to me the other day, we joke about silly things he did. He was walking along one day and he flung this two litres of milk across a road. Over lockdown, we're always going to the, the shop and I'm saying, don't do a Donal, don't do a Donal. <laughs> when they carry stuff, you know. And Georgina, the wee one who appeared there, she said what quite recently, she said, is he Donal? Like, he's kind of part of our family, isn't he? And I was like, yeah, you know, that, that's it, you know, so. Wow, that's a fascinating way of, of dealing with something. Yeah, so we talk about him a lot, and I think he would love that, to think how he has just got into this, this family and he's part of it, even mm -hmm. though they've never met him. But we keep him alive, and it's just so wonderful that even Stevie, my husband, you know, he, he just knows he was there. And to be honest, if it wasn't for Donal, Paul, we wouldn't be alive. I wouldn't be alive. We really? wouldn't have this family. Um, so, so he's very much a part of it. A year ago this week, I was back in the Orkney Islands. I say back as if going to the Orkney Islands was a regular occurrence, but the truth was, the last time I had been here was as a small child on a family holiday over 40 years ago. But although all these decades had passed, it felt strangely familiar. It could have been because I'd read and reread novels, short stories and poems by a writer called George Mackay Brown, who's one of my favourites, and he spent his life here. And these had kept the Orkney landscape and its history and its characters present in my imagination. Or maybe it was because my archaeologist parents thought that Orkney was the centre of the Neolithic universe 
I'd heard their theories about scarabray and stone circles and brocks all my life. I listened to fiddle tunes played by Arcadian fiddlers and music by Peter Maxwell Davis, a composer who'd made his home here. If you haven't heard his piece, Orkney Wedding with Sunrise for orchestra and, spoiler alert, bagpipes, you're missing out. I think one of the reasons it taken me so long to get back here was that it just took so long to get here. We crossed the Irish Sea, we'd driven the length of Scotland from Stranraer to Thurso, and then taken the ferry from Scrabster to Stromness, with two dogs and my mother for company. At least we felt like we were really getting away from it all. Wherever we are in the world, our two collies wake with the sun and expect an early morning walk. This is problematic in Orkney in midsummer because the sun hardly sets. By about the third day of the holiday, we were getting used to getting up early before six or seven each morning and Campbell and I went out at that time of day to explore. We eventually found an ideal spot for a dog walk. We drove out of Stromness to a car park beside a graveyard where we could join a path which hugged the shore, looking over the sound to the island of Hoy. I'd read that George Mackay Brown's grave was in this graveyard, so one morning I had a wander through the stones to try and find it. This wasn't easy. There were stones going back at least a couple of centuries and signs of recent burials. I wandered up and down the lines not knowing what I was looking for. I didn't find George's grave that day, but another headstone caught my eye. It stood out because it was new and different. Instead of polished granite, this was a slab of grey rock carved with an image of a boat on the waves with words of poetry dancing in and around the ship. All I ask is a merry yarn from a laughing fellow rover and a quiet sleep and a sweet dream when the long trick's over. You might know it. There was a name, Ian Morrison, and dates 1950 to 2019, and no more details. And I stood for a time beside this stone and thought about who this man might have been someone at home on the sea, someone loved by people who had created a unique and beautiful reminder of this man's unique and beautiful life. Two weeks later, and we'd been back home a few days, and I had the radio on to accompany some mundane tasks. It was Radio 4 and soul music was on. If you haven't heard soul music, seek it out, although it's a rival podcast. Each episode features personal stories from people who love a particular piece of music. And coincidentally, this episode was about a piece by Peter Maxwell Davis called Farewell to Stromness, a piano piece written in Orkney in 1980 as a protest against a proposed uranium mine on the islands. So my ears pricked up. It's a simple, dignified piece of music which was written as part of this satirical review, but it's since been played at a royal wedding and regularly at island funerals. 
And someone on the programme spoke about hearing the music in the moments after the birth of her baby. And for her, it was perfect music to welcome a new child into the world. One of the voices speaking about the music had that lovely Arcadian accent that we'd just heard days before. The speaker's name was Tim. He spoke about growing up on the islands, meeting Peter Maxwell Davis, or Max as he's known, how they had loved each other, how they had parted, and how near the end of Max's life they had become companions again when Tim had cared for Max in his illness. As Tim spoke, I was struck by a familiarity about his voice that was more than a vague holiday reminiscence. It was one of those moments that stops you in your tracks. And in a flashback, I was taken back to my university days in Aberdeen, also a good few decades ago, when Tim from Orkney had been a friend of mine. And the last time I'd seen him was at our graduation ball when we'd shared a table. We hadn't kept in touch and I'd lost track of him many years ago. I had no idea what path his life had taken, but I was sure it was the same Tim. So I did what anyone might do in that situation. I looked him up on Facebook and there he was, still living in Orkney in Max's old house. And on his page, there were messages of congratulations for his recent marriage. And I was glad to see that he'd found love again. But there were also messages of condolence. His brother had recently died. His brother Ian, Ian Morrison. I sent him a message and he remembered me. I told him about being on Orkney and finding the gravestone by chance and wondering if it might have been his brother's. It was. Ian Morrison was a sailor. The stone was carved by a sculptor who knew him well. Tim and I exchanged a few messages and wished each other well. We remembered our time in university, but we didn't dwell on it. He told me how he has found happiness since Max's death, how the benefits of island life outweigh the challenges, and how strange life is to weave random threads together until a connection is made in this small world. Oh, Helen, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much. How lovely. I like the way you kind of skirt over the long journey to get there and you just narrowed it all down to that one gorgeous moment in front of that grave. Did you ever take any photographs of that beautiful grave? I did, actually. I have it. Send it on to us. We'll put it out on the feed, if you like. Yeah, um, and we can send out the link to Soul, um, soul Music as well. Uh, you, your two musical, I wrote down your two musical recommendations, um, Orkney Wedding at Sunrise and Soul Music. No surprise to anybody that you're a music teacher. <laughs> Those little <laughs> tidbits of, uh, of information that you're dropping there. That's uh, such a beautiful, beautiful story of Small World. Thank you so much. Thank Gorgeous. You. That was Padraig chatting to Helen Killick and a big thank you to both Helens who've been wonderful supporters of 10 by 9 over the years. And if you want to see our storytellers in action, then go to our YouTube channel. All our Zoom stories are there. And if you'd like to tell a story, go along to the guidelines page on our website, 10by9.com, and get in touch. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be. But like many people and organisations, we've taken a big hit these past few months as the work that subsidises what we do has dried up. But we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're really thankful to everyone who has donated. 
And that's it from me for now. Be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website and get in touch. We love hearing from you. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran. So blame me. I'll be back with another podcast soon. Until then, bye-bye.